When we were kids, the way Autumn was portrayed in picture books and movies made it seem like an almost mythical thing. We'd never seen anything like it in real life. Those stunning fairy tale forests with cascades of red and yellow leaves floating down into piles big enough to swallow you whole. To a couple of Texan kids, it looked like a fantasy world, Sleepy Hollow by way of Middle Earth. Summer in Texas is a merciless tyrant that chokes the leaves dry long before they have the chance to turn. There's no colors, no cascades. They just shrivel up and die in ashy brown clumps that crunch beneath your feet and crumble to bits in your hand. Here, children don't play in the leaves so much as they grind the bitter memories of summer into dust. But sometime in the waning days of September, things begin to change. The nights creep into the days, devouring the afternoon daylight hour by hour, until dusk, like a changeling, takes its place. The sky and everything else takes on the dreamlike red-yellow haze of nostalgia and fading memories. There's an electricity in the air. You can smell it. And if you're young enough, you can feel it, taste it, sense it coming from weeks and miles away. It feels alive. When autumn comes to Texas, it comes on a gust of wind and goes out just the same, and always too soon. Once the trick-or-treaters have gone home and the jack-o'-lanterns have gone dark, its work here is done. Until next year, when it's time again to chase away the summer and carry off the dust. In a way, autumn in Texas is Halloween, and there's a special kind of magic in that. But the older we get, the faster time passes, and the more distant and disconnected from that magic we become. For most folks, Halloween is something you outgrow and pass on to your kids, like a hand-me-down so you can watch them enjoy it, just like you did, for as long as it still fits. Some of us try to hold on to it for as long as we can, letting our inner child free to sing the dusk electric, if only for a few hazy weeks out of the year. But then there's those rare folks you run into every now and then, who almost seem as though they had never been children at all. Ronnie was one of those rare folks. That is, until 1974, his 30th autumn when something inside him changed. And for the first time in his life, Ronald Clark O'Brien was excited for Halloween. I'm Brad Dewar. And I'm Ryan Sheffield. And this is a Texarkana Halloween. It had been a rough year for Ronnie, a rough decade really. He had a respectable enough house in the Houston suburb of Deer Park, just off the coast. But he fell behind on the mortgage and had no choice but to move his family into a smaller rental up the road. He had a respectable enough job working at an eyeglass store in Sharpstown, but after rent, bills, and groceries, every paycheck felt like it was already spent before it even got to the bank. Respectable enough, it seemed, was just never enough. His wife, Daneen, and their children, five-year-old Elizabeth and eight-year-old Timothy, were trying to make the best of things but things just weren't getting any better. Ronnie was eight months behind on his car payment, and the repo men were waiting in the wings. The creditors were calling nonstop, and it was only a matter of time before the IRS followed suit. And no one, not his friends, his coworkers, or even the banks, were able or willing to lend. The O'Briens were broke, and Ronnie hadn't exactly been doing his part to turn things around. Back in January, seemingly out of the blue, he told Daneen they needed to buy life insurance policies for the kids. Of course, she told him that was a terrible idea. They couldn't afford something like that, and it just didn't really seem all that necessary. 
but Ronnie insisted it was important to be covered, just in case. Hope for the best and plan for the worst. They'd find a way to make it work. She just needed to have faith. But after months of paying premiums, Daneen still hadn't warmed up to the idea. So he decided it was best not to tell her about it when he took out a second policy on the kids that September. He just, you know, didn't want her to worry. Besides, Ronnie was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church. He even sang in the choir. He was a good, faithful husband and father and a respected member of the community. God would provide. He was sure of it. So sure of it, in fact, he told his friends and coworkers that he expected to come into some money by the end of the year, and a lot of it. Enough, he said, to buy the family a new house, maybe even enough to quit his job. He never did say where all that money was going to come from, but as far as his friend Jimmy Bates was concerned, it was just nice to see him excited and happy about something for once. It had been a while. Jimmy invited Ronnie to bring the whole family over on Halloween night for dinner and trick-or-treating with the kids. Ronnie agreed, but on one little condition. Don't mention any of the money stuff to Daneen, alright? I wanted to be a surprise. That same week, Ronnie stopped on the way home from work to buy each of his kids a costume and another life insurance policy. Halloween fell on a cold, rainy Thursday that year, which, as any kid or kid at heart can tell you, totally sucks. It meant that for a grueling eight hours, it would be just another day. And on top of that, the storm clouds couldn't decide if they were coming or going, teasing clear skies one minute, then dousing all hope the next. It was trick-or-treat torture. Even Ronnie was feeling the weekday Halloween blues, grinding his way through an all-day shift at the eyeglass store. Customers came and went, and Ronnie repaired their glasses while they waited, so he had to do his best to make small talk, something he was never that great at. You know, the usual stuff. How about the weather? How about them cowboys? How much cyanide do you think it might take to kill a man? It was a little morbid for idle chit-chat, but the customer shrugged it off. It was Halloween, after all. After work, Ronnie went straight to Jimmy's place. Danian had plans with a friend later that night, so she and the kids took their own car and just met him up there. He showed up at Jimmy's door still wearing his long blue optician's coat. It wasn't much of a costume, but it was better than nothing. After all, he'd gone as nothing for Halloween every year. Jimmy's wife prepared a lovely dinner, but her hard work was kind of lost on the kids, who were busy fussing with their costumes and eyeing the rain clouds that were so annoyingly non-committal about ruining the best night of the year. As soon as their plates were clean, Timothy, Elizabeth, and Mark, Jimmy's son, jumped to their feet and practically dragged their dads to the door. His daughter, Kim, decided she didn't want to brave the cold, soggy mess outside, so she volunteered to stay behind and help her mom hand out candy. It wasn't that bad out, really but even a light drizzle can be enough to snuff out the porch lights on Halloween night. It was only half past seven and half the houses in the neighborhood had already gone dark. Even some of the lit houses weren't answering their doors. Luckily, the ones that did were generous and the kids were still making out pretty dang well, all things considered. Still, the dads agreed it was probably best to just stick to Jimmy Street and the next street over. The door to 4112 Donrail was hidden from the road by a brick wall and when the group crossed behind it, they were disappointed to find yet another darkened porch. They still gave the doorbell a ring just to be sure, but even a few seconds can feel like a thousand years when candy's on the line. So the kids gave up pretty fast and ran on to the next house with Jimmy. 
but Ronnie decided to hang tight and give it just a little more time, and his patience paid off, big time. Only about 30 seconds later, he caught up with the gang at the next house, waving around a handful of ridiculously oversized pixie sticks. You almost have some rich neighbors, he said. The kids couldn't believe it. Hell, Jimmy couldn't believe it. The things were almost 20 inches long, way too big to fit in anyone's treat bag, so Ronnie offered to hold on to them until they got home. His blue optician's coat had some really deep pockets. They managed to hit a few more porches before the drizzle turned to rain, and they had to call it a night before someone caught a cold. But the kids couldn't complain. They were only out there for half an hour and already had enough candy to last them well through Christmas. Back at the house, Ronnie pulled the five impossibly long pixie sticks out of his impossibly deep pockets and gave one to each of the kids. Before they had a chance to argue and bargain over who deserved to get the last unclaimed pixie stick, the doorbell rang. Chick or treat! It was a 10-year-old boy they all recognized from church, Whitney Parker, and it was his lucky night. He damn near dropped his treat bag when he laid eyes on that two-foot-long tube full of sugar. Once he thanked them and skipped off down the sidewalk, the porch light at the Bates house joined the rest in the dark. It was getting late and the kids needed to go to bed. Jimmy had to work the night shift and Danine's friend was waiting on her. She thanked the Bates family for a lovely evening, kissed Ronnie, Elizabeth, and Timothy goodbye, and headed out. Ronnie took the kids home and told them they could each have one piece of candy, but after that, it's lights out. And don't tell mom, okay? Timothy dug through his bag and pulled out a cherry red sucker. No, no, it'll take hours to finish that, Ronnie said. Here, how about this pixie stick? Ronnie popped it open and helped him pour the candy dust into his mouth. Timothy winced, swallowed, and stuck out his now purple tongue. Tastes bad, Daddy. Ronnie ran to the kitchen and grabbed a glass of Kool-Aid to help him wash it down. Daddy, Daddy, my tummy hurts. But when he got back, Timothy was already in the bathroom. Ronnie grabbed his waist to stabilize him while he vomited, but within seconds the boy collapsed into violent convulsions on the floor. Ronnie picked him up, then felt him go limp in his arms. He ran to the phone and called 911. An ambulance happened to be right up the road and Timothy was rushed to the hospital in a matter of minutes. Within an hour, he was dead. When Detective Bill Lanier arrived at the hospital, he described the grieving father as a big fella, kinda homely, with a quote, real hangdog look. But once they got to talking, he found Ronnie to be a quote, big teddy bear, with a soft-spoken, almost feminine manner about him. It's unclear if Danine had made it to the hospital at that point, but if she had, we can only imagine the excruciating pain she must have been suffering at that moment. How difficult it must have been for her to comfort Elizabeth, to help her understand, especially when she so badly needed that same comfort and understanding for herself. But Ronnie, as Detective Lanier put it, wasn't crying or bawling or anything. Still, he didn't see any reason to find it suspicious. Everyone processes the shock of this kind of tragedy in their own way. Ronnie answered his questions and told him all he knew, which wasn't much. He said the pixie sticks came from a house in Jimmy's subdivision, but he never got a good look at the man who gave him the candy. All I could see was an arm, he said. Detectives immediately contacted the Bates and Parkers and fanned out across Pasadena and Deer Park, hoping to recover any of the poison candy that might still be out there. The O'Briens surely weren't the only kids who trick-or-treated in the neighborhood that night. Jimmy's wife called him at work and told him Timothy had died, and she was terrified because their daughter Kim was in bed with a headache. Jimmy dropped what he was doing and sped home as fast as he could, 
the two pixie sticks were still right where he left them, untouched. When the Parkers got the call, they dropped the phone and ran upstairs to Whitney's room. They found him lying there on his bed, clutching the pixie stick to his chest. We can only imagine their relief and their son's confusion when he opened his eyes. He hadn't eaten the candy. He'd fallen asleep trying to get it open. Meanwhile, the pixie sticks were sent to the lab for testing, but it would take some time for the results to come in, and Harris County Assistant DA, Mike Hinton, didn't think they had any time to spare. He called up the county's chief medical examiner and explained the situation. What's the boy's breath smell like? The examiner asked. Hinton hung up and called the hospital morgue. Um, kind of smells like almonds? Hey, hey man, come here and, come here and smell this kid's mouth real quick. That smell like almonds to you? Yeah, smells like almonds, all right. Hinton thanked them and got the examiner back on the line. It's cyanide, he said. The lab test confirmed the examiner's hunch. One end of each pixie stick had been open and then resealed with a staple, and the top two inches of candy had been removed and replaced with potassium cyanide, enough to kill a full-grown adult three times over. At 9 a.m. the next morning, less than 12 hours after his son's death, Ronnie called his insurance company to inquire about Timothy's claim. A half hour later, he called another one. Both agents told him the same thing. To collect, he needed to present an official copy of the death certificate for each individual claim. And when he met with the funeral director that afternoon, he requested six. Word of the boy's death spread like wildfire throughout Deer Park, Pasadena, and beyond. Local police stations were inundated with thousands of pieces of Halloween candy turned over by fearful parents. Investigators on the case would later recall that one station alone received enough candy to fill an entire room. Within a matter of days, half the county was in a full-on state of panic. Ronnie, for his part, agreed to ride along with investigators and attempt to ID the house where he got the candy. But even after several drive-bys, he just couldn't remember which one it was. They all looked so similar, and it had been dark, rainy. The detectives made a concerted effort to hide their frustration, but still, it was only two streets. Timothy O'Brien was laid to rest that Saturday, and Ronnie performed a choir solo the following morning. He sang a song called Blessed Assurance, with rewritten lyrics about young Timothy ascending to heaven to walk alongside the Lord. A local news crew videotaped the performance and broadcast it later that night. Ronnie reportedly watched the whole thing, and quote, became agitated, because his grieving wife and daughter just weren't in the mood to stay up late and gush over his vocal performance. Friends, colleagues, and investigators alike were starting to think that something was off. When the story of Timothy's death was picked up on the national news, Ronnie seemed excited about the coverage, and he was still in the habit of talking openly to friends and colleagues about that secret god money he was supposed to be getting. Any time now. It was starting to become clear to everyone that either Ronnie had a very strange way of coping with grief, or he wasn't really grieving at all. And with every passing day, the investigators leaned more and more toward the ladder. They took him out for a second ride along through the neighborhood, this time dropping any pretense of respect for the bereaved. They got tough with him and made it clear that if he still couldn't remember the house, things were gonna take a very different path, one that he wasn't gonna like. And all of a sudden, just like that, his memory jogged. He pointed out the window and said, That's it, that's the house. 
Later that day, a team of homicide detectives cross behind the brick wall that obscures the door of 4112 Dunrail. A woman named Carolyn Melvin answered, and the cops demanded to speak to her husband immediately. She told them he was at work at the airport. What's this about? But they were already gone. Within the hour, police descended on the airport and arrested Courtney Melvin without so much as a question, right in front of his coworkers. We don't know much about Courtney's time in detention, but we sure as hell hope they apologized. Courtney hadn't even been home on Halloween night. He'd been at work and had the timesheets to prove it, not to mention nearly 200 witnesses willing to corroborate his alibi. The only people at 4112 Dunrail that night were his wife and their young children, and they'd stopped answering the door when they ran out of candy before Ronnie's crew even started trick-or-treating. And they weren't handing out pixie sticks. At that point, investigators had no choice but to conclude the obvious. Ronnie O'Brien killed his own son for the insurance money, and grimmer still, attempted to murder four other children, including his own daughter, just to cover up the crime. The detectives got a search warrant for Ronnie's house and turned up some scissors, or in some records, a knife, maybe both, with traces of plastic and purple candy dust stuck to the blades. Ronnie was taken into custody, and even under intense interrogation, denied everything. Even without a confession, it only took investigators a few days to dig up everything they needed to know. Ronnie was nearly $100,000 in debt, and his boss at the eyeglass store was actively trying to get him fired over suspicion of theft. In fact, in the previous five years, Ronnie had held and lost 21 jobs. As if that weren't enough, almost a dozen witnesses say Ronnie spoke to them about cyanide just within the previous months. Co-workers, customers, friends, chemical company workers, a community college professor, even his boss. But even with all those witnesses and leads, authorities never did figure out where he got it. And Ronnie wasn't talking. He maintained his innocence and lawyered up, basing his entire defense on an urban legend. Tales of so-called mad poisoners have been circulating for a few decades at that point. It's where the whole candy apples and razor blades thing comes from. And like we said back in episode three, the 1970s were fertile ground for post-McCarthy-era paranoia about cults, serial killers, and satanic forces lurking behind every corner. Ronnie and his lawyers did their best to exploit those fears and convince the jury that this kind of random, heinous act of violence happened all the time. It could have been any transient, deviant, devil-loving monster. Surely you, the jury, would never try to lay the blame for something like this on a God-fearing Baptist family man. But by that point, it was obvious to everyone that the choir boy shtick had never been anything more than a cheap costume. The defense couldn't find a single character witness who had anything positive to say about him. Not one. Everyone in his life testified against him. Friends, family, co-workers, even his own wife. Withdrawn and emotionless, Danine stared off into the distance and told the court, or no one in particular, quote, I did not see any tears. Days after her testimony, she filed for divorce and took sole custody of Elizabeth. She never took a cent of the insurance money. By that point, media coverage of the trial had gone international. Reporters from all over the world swarmed the courthouse daily, hoping to catch a glimpse of the killer they were calling the Candyman. And Ronnie absolutely loved the attention. During the trial, he turned to District Attorney Hinton, grinning, and offered him a Tootsie Roll. On June 3rd, 1975, 
it took the jury less than two hours to find him guilty of all charges and sentence him to death. Ronald Clark O'Brien was on his way to Huntsville death row and eventually the electric chair. But even in his cell, he seemed totally unfazed. His lawyers described him as calm and totally confident that he'd win on appeal. He told the courts he was nothing more than the victim of a panic-stricken working-class lynch mob driven by media hysteria and desperately looking for a scapegoat to bear the brunt of their fear and rage. It was a total lie, of course, but ironically enough, it would be Ronnie's crime that helped spark a very real hysterical panic, one that would consume the entire nation for decades to come. University of Delaware professor Joel Best put it, well, best, when he said, quote, the case had kind of an echo chamber effect. Unproven rumors of strangers playing deadly Halloween pranks on children had been circulating for decades. And while Timothy's poisoning was neither random nor anonymous, the resultant publicity confirmed parents' anxieties about stranger danger. Timothy's death was the first ever documented case of intentional Halloween candy poisoning. And despite anything that your mom might have told you, there's never been another case since, ever. Best goes on to say, quote, This is a contemporary legend that speaks to our anxiety about kids. Most of us don't believe in ghosts and goblins anymore, but we believe in criminals. And like we touched on in episode three, the irrational belief in absurd urban legends was often the outgrowth of legitimate societal fears. One of the articles we used in our research for this story came from a 1982 issue of a Kentucky newspaper, and we just happened to notice the headlines on the facing page. Quote, Hysteria blamed for some poison symptoms, and below it, no fingerprints found on latest poison Tylenol bottle. So, yeah. After two appeals and two postponements, Ronnie found himself before Judge Michael McSpadden who, let's just say, wasn't especially sympathetic to the defendant's story. He literally offered to personally escort Ronnie to the death chamber and set the new execution date to coincide with the eighth anniversary of his crime, Halloween night, 1982. It would make Ronnie the first criminal executed in Texas in 20 years, and also the first ever to die by the newly adopted method of lethal injection, death by poison. As much as we would absolutely love this story to have such a perfect and deliciously ironic ending, it didn't quite go as planned. Ronnie appealed again, and the Supreme Court awarded him another postponement, but it would be the last. The date was set for March 31st, 1984, and though Ronnie would no longer be remembered as the first lethal injection case, his legacy still haunts American culture to this very day and we're reminded of it perennially all over America from small towns to big cities every time the autumn blows in and the porch lights go dark. Lanier would later recall, quote, people were scared to death. People didn't go trick-or-treating around here for years. As Hinton prophetically put it at the time, Halloween will never be the same. Not like it was before this happened. He's the man that ruined Halloween for the whole world. For his last meal, Ronnie requested a well-done steak with a side of ketchup, in case there was any doubt in your mind that he was a monster. A crowd of more than 300 people gathered outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, about 30 of them anti-death penalty protesters from Amnesty International. The rest were just there for the poison. Ronald Clark O'Brien was pronounced dead shortly after midnight to a roaring cheer from the crowd. 
The protesters were pelted with fistfuls of Halloween candy as revelers chanted, Trick or treat. 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 Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. See you next month. And thanks for listening, y'all. And happy Halloween.